welcome to One of 200, the New Zealand International Politics Podcast. We're joined today by ex-Green MP Gareth Hughes and Greenpeace campaigner Amanda Larson to talk about energy uh, and energy infrastructure in this uh, kind of climate crisis world. Welcome to the cast, folks. Thanks for having us. I don't even know where to start with this, <laughs> if I'm being honest. We've seen um, just in the last couple of weeks, you know, we had a um, unexpected blackout in Hamilton uh, that may or may not have been to do with Jen Taylor's uh, choosing not to buy power, uh, but was potentially due to uh, infrastructure failures. We've had another one this afternoon. Um, we're here on, uh, on the 17th of August um on the tuesday so i've just seen another one come through saying that they might not have uh, available uh power for the north for all of the north island um there's a real back and forth between uh the governments and the power company's pr which is really frustrating um gareth you had a couple of um quick points to make last week when the initial one of these occurred do you want to just rehash some of those for us well, I mean, the first point is that it's totally unacceptable. You know, in a modern society, we expect power to be operating, particularly on one of the coldest nights of the year. Um, on the other hand, though, it's not surprising. The grid has been run to such a close uh, margin when it comes to generation, matching supply and demand, that frankly, it's surprising we haven't faced these issues before. But to me, the big issue is how it uncovers um, the fact that something's broken in the wider power market. And when the lights turn off, I think that's when a lot of people pay attention to what's happening with the energy. And there are so many big issues facing the sector, so many disruptions, transformations, opportunities, which we're frankly missing that, yeah, it's a really interesting time. But sadly, I think we're being failed by those in power. Amanda, Greenpeace had a, a couple of things come out as well in regards to kind of some of the future of energy policy. Um, what, what are the organization's views on what needs to be done here? I mean, I think what we've seen for the last few decades here in New Zealand is just a, an underinvestment in new technology and in new generation in particular, but also um, an underinvestment in energy efficiency and also in storage. And that's coming home to roost now in the form of these blackouts, also in the form of, you know, burning record amounts of coal at the moment at Huntley Power Station. Um, and there are like the, the kind of short term reasons for that, which are around the hydro lakes being a bit lower um, and the gas supply being um, unreliable at the moment. Some more coal is kicking in. But the fundamental systemic reason for this is just we have an energy market that is designed for profit maximizing companies and there's a perverse incentive in the design of the market for those companies to keep the supply of renewable energy scarce um, and for them to also keep some coal or gas burning in the system um, because just basically the way the market is designed means that um, they make a lot of profits off of the hydro when there's thermal in there. Um, <clears throat> so there's, there's no incentive for the big generators really to build new renewables. Um, and, you know, in some ways you could kind of forgive them for that because that's how they were set up at these, as these profit maximizing corporations, but it's obviously not delivering 
power to people who need to heat their homes, which is a fundamental right. And it's also um, screwing the climate by increasing the amount of coal we're burning in the middle of a climate crisis. So um, the, the solution is pretty straightforward. It's we need to build new renewables. Um, and we need to improve the energy efficiency of, of homes. There's 600,000 underinsulated homes in New Zealand. Um, and also we need some storage um, built into the system as well. Um, and to be frank, you know, the, the Jen Taylors haven't done it and the government has sat on its hands as well. Um, and yeah, basically the government needs to step in and start building some stuff and also um, change the market structure to make it so that um, our generators are actually building stuff too. Um, and from my perspective, like I totally agree with Gareth that we're in this really disruptive moment right now where we have this new technology that means that people can own their own energy and people like more than half of New Zealanders want to put solar panels on their roofs, but they're disincentivized. Um, so yeah, from my perspective, why not use this opportunity to, to give people back control over their energy? And um, that's what we've been pushing for at Greenpeace is for in the first instance, the government to help um, people solarize their homes or support communities to install solar and, and community wind. Um, and yeah, but yeah, lots successive governments, including this one, um, are just sort of sitting on their hands, which is frustrating. We had that exact same conversation um, last year as well, right, with, uh, I can't remember which company it was, but essentially dumping water out of one of the dams uh, because it was going to make power too cheap if they didn't. Uh, and then during the initial lockdown, there's a lot of talk about building back data um, or building back green, but we just haven't really seen any significant movement on that since you know there's all this talk about shovel ready projects uh and, and getting some infrastructure built but as new zealand got COVID under control none of that uh really eventuated gareth you've been in parliament uh trying to work on these issues um you know uh, and what's it like actually trying to make the move forward as a, as a minor party especially uh in the face of the labors and, and nationals well, I mean, it, it's been difficult, and I think that's the track record that uh, well, we haven't seen transformational change for an awful long time. We've seen, you know, some changes on the margin. Some have made it better, some have made it worse, but I think you could put a lot of it down to tinkering, whereas the, the challenge of climate change, you know, at the same time as the power market reforms from Bradford back in the, the 90s through to the reforms to today, you know, it hasn't delivered cheaper electricity. In fact, We've, since those Bradford reforms, had the fifth highest increases of any developed world country. Now the lines component of the bill has taken up 40%. So look, at, it's not providing the cheap electricity. And when you look at the challenge of climate change, it's not providing the renewable clean electricity that I think a lot of Kiwis thought we once upon a time had, expect us to have, want us to have, but we just don't have it. I mean, we've got less renewables today than we did in, when Muldoon was Prime Minister. We're seeing record amounts of coal being burnt. In fact, the latest figures, uh, it's the single largest increase since the records began in 2009. So it's actually going in the wrong direction. Yet when you see the blackouts, when you see the power price rises, when you see the negative stats or big coal ships bringing these imports in, everyone in the sector blames everyone else. Now, in Parliament, I've watched it for an awful long time as the energy spokesperson for 10 years. Whenever there's an issue, they blame each other, be it the Lions Company, the Gen Taylor, the politicians, the Electricity Authority, the Commerce Commission. You know, we've got 
dozens of local lines monopolies. Uh, so everyone blames everyone else. It's a convenient track record they've fallen into. And for once, I'd just love to see someone step up and take responsibility. Now, the Greens and I tried to do that with my role in Parliament, providing a whole host of policy solutions over the years. And I know Greenpeace have, academics have. There's lots of solutions out there. We're a very uniquely run electricity system. I've been really privileged to travel to different countries and research the way they run their electricity grids. And I think we're unique to having such control. Uh, it's called um, uh, vertical integration of our power com companies. There's very little actually organization, very few effective targets. Uh, it's a very undemocratic system. And other countries' citizens have a much larger say in the decisions and the investments that are made. And the government's been really hands-off, despite owning the bulk of the electricity system. They haven't used their power, their influence, to drive the, the pricing or the renewables targets, which Kiwis expect. It's just part of this um, kind of broad neoliberalisation of infrastructure, I mean, alongside all other neoliberalisation that's occurred since the 80s, right? Um, but you see similar uh, in the broadband network. Uh, you see similar in the public transport space uh, with so much owned by uh, different uh, corporations within local locales uh, and a government that presumably has the ability to do something about it, but is hands off because they want the market to decide. Well, and, the, you know, sometimes they say that outright. Yeah, but, but the ability to do something isn't the same as the will to do something, right? And that, that's been this, the case for 20 to 30 years. So as, as Gareth was saying, like I think the recent history of this is instructive because it's not just the fact that uh, we haven't done something, it's the fact that there's been a successive series of governments who've promised reforms and haven't delivered on them that, that shows that there's something more deep, like a deeper kind of structural imperative that has maintained this kind of, uh, I don't want to say apathy, because I don't think that's true, but maybe maybe just the lack of will when it comes to challenging power, right? Because there are, there are entrenched power structures that want things to remain the same when it comes to electricity prices, you know, the, the creation of profit in these, in these forums. So like, as both Amanda and Gareth have said, like that, that is the history, the recent history of New Zealand when it comes to energy uh, economy, I suppose you could say, is like a fairly, fairly ongoing series of kind of tinkering. As Gareth said, like there's been very little structural change, even when people have explicitly promised like greater greater democracy greater kind of ground up change that's never that's never come forth and and there are there are very clear things you could do but these things have been kind of proffered and then never got through the gates because there are there's a level of kind of um i suppose you could say challenge that gets that gets brought to it at a I don't know at a parliamentary level every time because rich rich people don't want the shit to go through. That's why it's not it's not a it's not a complicated thing. I think there's you a find their mum and dad investors for it. Yeah, yeah, that's what I'm forgetting about. Sorry, the, the mum and dad investors don't, don't want these things to pass, right? And in other parts of our society, we've slowly moved away from some of that neoliberal extremism of Roger Douglas and others. But electricity is one area where it's still dominant. You know, the main regulator, the Electricity Authority, has drunk the Kool-Aid uh, to a great extent. Um, and even though they designed a system which is working theory, we've now got decades of example where it hasn't worked in practice. It's not delivering the outcomes we want, yet still uh, they're wedded to the orthodoxy. On the other side of the ledger, the government's become addicted to the dividends. 
that the large gentailers pay for their balance sheets. So it's a tragedy, right, that we're seeing such poor outcomes, but uh, a bit of a money go around, which isn't really delivering the benefits that people want. The tragedy is that we had such a, a high functioning system that took the best elements of, uh, you know, a long stringy electricity system, so major source of generation, mostly in the South, and pushed it around the country affordably, uh, efficiently, with a very fair pricing. Um, and we've actually turned that on its head and now we've got worse outcomes than we did before. So we've got such an opportunity with electric vehicles, you know, decarbonizing industry in New Zealand through electrification. Uh, we've got a great challenge ahead of us and sadly it doesn't, I'm not seeing the signals from, uh, from political parties, from governments, from the industry itself that we're gonna reorientate to this great challenge of the 21st century. Yeah, I agree with Gareth. I mean, just looking at um, the electricity price review that the government ran in the last term, um, if you when you read the electricity price review, you basically get the sense that the electricity system is totally broken, is not delivering for customers. Um, you know, residential users users have had a really raw deal. Their prices have gone up exponentially, while commercial and industrial users have, you know, through having greater lobbying power, been able to keep their prices more stable. And it was just fascinating looking at the recommendations that came out of that review because they're just tiny little tweaks and tinkering when the data just so clearly says this system is broken and needs to fundamentally change. Um, and I, yeah, I think so much of it is just kind of um, the electricity system, I guess, historically, you know, you've, you've, it's been a really complex and natural monopoly to, you know, to a great extent, because generation has historically been this like, um, you know, you need massive power stations that require heaps of capital to build, and then you need huge networks to deliver around the place. So um, it was a natural monopoly that was then turned into a market, and then that had to be really closely regulated in order to make it all work in a kind of market sense. So it's just made things really complicated. And now we've got this really complex set of rules, which is actually a barrier to technological innovation. Um, and now we've got this change where any person can generate their own energy off their roof or you know a community could be able to set up a wind farm and generate their own energy but the regulatory environment is set up for these huge kind of infrastructure or huge bits of infrastructure and is is a barrier to that kind of small scale generation um, which is more efficient is you know more affordable more democratic um, and in other parts of the world i guess we've seen you know, the kind of vast majority of our government's peers um, introducing incentives or schemes to support distributed generation, whether it's household or community owned. But here in New Zealand, they've literally done nothing um, and haven't even undone those barriers. So I think that's that's a real shame. Um, but yeah, I think these blackouts have been a bit of a wake-up call and the coal burning has been a wake-up call and I think the government is really feeling the pressure and it's one of those moments when we can remind them that hey this whole system is broken and there's a disruptive opportunity here for things to get better um, and they should really pave the way. Um, well, that's one of the, um, the really important things about distributed um, or redistributed energy network as well right is if we're relying on the South Island for the large for a large amount of it um, of our energy across New Zealand, uh, and with like stuff like damage to 
the cables, especially of the Cook Strait, um, with different climate crises occurring, high, like, damaging weather events, um, having a single, like, a centralized uh, energy market just it's a nightmare. It's like, it's a, it's a serious tragedy waiting to happen. Um, how, do, how do we get, you know, we we're talking earlier about, you know, the blackouts uh, being a, a wake up call and you mentioned it again there, Amanda, that do we have to wait for it to get worse to actually get the cut through with the public and, and thus the, the electoral um, parties? Good, good question. <laughs> I'd love to say we didn't have to wait for things to get worse. Um, you know, it, I think in some ways things do have to get worse for the for the government to feel the pressure. Otherwise, they could just keep you know continuing with the same strategy because it feels like it's working. I guess um, it, what, one thing that we're lacking here in New Zealand that exists in other parts of the world is um, kind of strong advocacy organizations for community renewables or for household solar, and we we just don't really have that. So there isn't a huge amount of pressure, and I think you know a lot of people, more than fifty percent of New Zealanders, say they want to make their own energy, um, go online, try and find out how they can get solar panels, um, but there isn't like a organized group of people who are getting together saying we all want this and we're going to put pressure on yeah. the government to deliver it and that's what's missing it's a really classic thing with a lot of <clears throat> um kind of big community um or just electorate issues in, in general at the moment is you've got so many problems for which there is 50 percent plus of the electorate who agree that a, a significant transformation or change is needed. So um, capital gains tax and, and similar interventions uh, is, I think it's 60% plus, for example. Same with solar, same with, with a bunch of other stuff. But the governments haven't quite moved on that yet. Um, and you're seeing that across the world as well. Uh, it's not isolated uh, to the New Zealand political experience. But you'd think that here where we are a, you know, a proportional representative system, there'd be more opportunity to get things occurring. And I'm, I'm going to ask you this, Gareth, and feel free not to be baited on it, um, but it feels like the Greens haven't used their voice to their full effect while they've been in, in Parliament um, with Labour uh, as, a, as a partner. Yeah, well, I mean, on the other hand, I have been quite heartened to see the Greens this term be a lot more vocal than we were last term. Uh, there are you know, pros from being within government, but also the risk to your voice. So my message to the Green Party is these are really big issues and we need an opposition uh, voice who can criticise big decisions that aren't being made. So, you know, on things like climate change, we can't leave it up to ACT or National uh, to be the challenging perspective on climate change uh, to the government. So, yeah, I would, I would urge them to, to be more vocal, uh, more assertive. Uh, a lot of their policies, you know, are the exact solutions yeah. we do need to respond. I mean, just a personal reflection, I remember talking to a former uh, Minister of Energy whose piece of advice to me was, well, Gareth, no Minister of Energy ever made their career in this portfolio. They only ever lost it. And what he meant was things like the Auckland power cuts of the 90s, you know, other challenges in the past. So I think what we've seen in various ministers over various governments is quite a risk aversion, quite a conservative approach. And 
from Labour and National. So we've been a really conservative, um, uh, almost a deference to business. And I think, you know, these business leaders do have a huge amount of power, quite literally, uh, to influence decisions. But, you know, with things like climate change, that offers a great catalyst to really tackle some of these challenges. My message to politicians also would be that the solutions to these issues, things like solarizing, Amanda's talked about, you know, reducing power bills through energy efficiency and conservation, you know, using electric vehicles as a distributed battery so we don't have to spend billions of dollars trashing the environment with pumped hydro schemes. You know, these are really popular, really tangible solutions which should be attractive to politicians who want to win votes. I think there's a lot of really positive voter-friendly policies that could be rolled out. I mean, one little example, a budget that I put in under the previous government was we could literally give five LED light bulbs to every New Zealand household and save them $280 million a year. It would be one of the most cost-effective policy interventions the government could have done. Sadly, it wasn't done, but there's a host of other equipment that would really save people money, save carbon, and hopefully, you know, earn those politicians' votes. Yeah, I I think Joanne Genta um, mentioned that again in Parliament last week. Yeah, yeah, no, she did. Gareth, you know why politicians don't want to take that up? Because they hate fiscal responsibility. They hate it so much. (laughs) They They would never follow through on what is, like, clearly what theoretically follows exactly under that remit right you're exactly you're exactly right that's the that's the that's the fucking problem um yeah sorry it's very frustrating clearly but that's the this is the entire issue right obviously we're all kind of like dancing around the the fact that like the electricity market in new zealand is just that it's a market it's left essentially up to um there needs to be a profit incentive at some level and like to what degree is that efficient and on what kind of scale there's kind of centralization, decentralization. These are the different arguments. But I feel like that is, that's kind of the central point is that um, should this be treated the same way as commodities of various kinds or like on, on what level is electricity something that humans need to survive, right? That's, that's always kind of the, the way that these things are actually debated on like an electoral level. Because for example, like labor, labor last election, I think it was, offered the um what was it senior thing energy rebate energy rebate thank you uh that was obviously a vote winner to some extent so that was treated as not an intervention in the market which it clearly was because they were giving that money to gen tailors but as something that would be forwarded on to people in need so that again is like a market intervention right so on a structural level to what level, to what degree do you think that is just like a misdiagnosis of the problem or like a, how, how do you think that's construed? I think that's, that's an, <laughs> maybe I'm over, maybe I'm over complexifying as usual, but I think that's an, I think that's an interesting question. Gareth, what do you, what do you think? Yeah, well, on one sense, we don't have a particularly competitive market. In fact, the electricity authority only strives for what they call workable competition. Uh, it's not a, a true market. And I think the difficulties to ac- enter it, to, to access the market, you know, you see independent retailers like Flick basically say the entire system's rigged against independent new entrants like us. Basically, the, the long story short is they can't use the massive customer base uh, to, to hedge against the fluctuating wholesale prices. What you see is, um, unlike other, you know, maybe much more competitive markets is, barriers to access so i mean one area where you know it would be considered quite a maybe a, a right wing 
yeah, fiscally responsible, as you said before, Philip, approaches, you know, real pricing to flow through the market. So, you know, one of the big areas is that our lines companies and retailers charge um, high fixed costs. This is simply to be connected to the grid, much lower variable costs. So there's no price incentive to reduce your consumption, to use more efficient appliances, you know, to turn off at the peaks like midwinter evenings where we saw the grid fall over. It's kind of like going to a petrol station and being charged $20 just to drive onto the forecourt before you get the product you actually went to buy. So we're sending the wrong economic signals itself. So yeah, I don't think it's particularly uh, open market. And when you see such strong testimony from the likes of Flick and the actual data on the ground that um, our wholesale market is incredibly illiquid. And what I mean by that is there's very little actually long-term trades being made on our market. Orders of magnitude more are being made in Australia, the North American markets, which just shows that um, there is very limited competitivity in there. So it's the worst of both worlds, right? We don't have a market that's encouraging the innovative new entrants like Flick or new providers to reduce your electricity consumption to, to match supply and demand. Yet we're not seeing the benefits of integration. You know, so our gen tailors working together where, you know, the wind's blowing or the, the rains fall and the lakes are high. So yeah, it's the worst of both worlds. Yeah, and the interesting thing about that is what you were saying before, Gareth, about the sort of um, diehard commitment to that orthodoxy or, or to that kind of theoretical principle of competitiveness in the market. Because um, I mentioned the electricity price review, and one of the things that a lot of people were calling for was that the kind of the purpose of the electricity system should be redefined to be about delivering affordable energy to New Zealanders and delivering on climate goals. Um, and they were really resistant to sort of changing their purpose statement away from promoting competitiveness. And the assumption that underlies that is that competition in the market necessarily means the, the best outcomes for society. But all of the data that they've presented says the opposite. Um, so, you know, one thing we've seen in, in Australia, which is quite interesting, um, in Victoria, the, they've invested a lot in supporting um, distributed generation and social housing and also loans and grants for people to put solar into their homes. And the way that they've justified it is, well, we can't go back and buy the power stations that we privatized. So let's just buy power stations for people and put them on their roofs. And I feel like what a great strategy when... We have huge levels of energy hardship in New Zealand and the people who are most affected by this sector's dysfunction are people in, in poverty and, and people in housing that's really poor quality. Let's make their homes more efficient. Let's put power stations in their homes. Um, it's kind of, it's a win-win both for the climate and for social outcomes. But yeah, we have a, a government that seems very resistant to see the light on, on that at the moment. Yeah, I mean, I'm 39. Across my lifetime, the price of solar per watt has dropped 99%, and every year it's dropping further. We're seeing something like um, equivalent uh, to Moore's law with computing in terms of batteries. Yet we've got this great opportunity, which we're not taking up. And in fact, the market, the electricity sector, has been actively trying to discourage it, not only with the buyback rates, but you know, many of the big power companies, including ECA under the national government co-funded a very negative, I think, very biased report on solar. You know, I thought it was sort of a, a hit job on solar by the industry. So they're, they're blocking out these great opportunities that Amanda's talking about. You know, take Marae, which is a hub of many of our communities. They could be energy hubs 
uh, for, for our communities and have essential batteries sharing electricity uh, among, amongst whānau uh, in a region. So we've got these great opportunities which we really should be taking up. You talked about the winter energy payment. You know, that on one hand was a genuine reflection of the real energy poverty we have in New Zealand. But, you know, an idea I was pushing last term is, well, why don't we try and magnify those winter energy payments? What if that person could have um, capitalised it, got more of the money up front, like we used to do with family benefits so people could buy a home back under the Kirk government? But what if they could use their winter energy payment, they get a bulk payment, if it went on something that reduced their power bills, you know, a more efficient appliances, uh, a more efficient heater, for example. So they're actually saving money on the long term, not just keeping um, slightly more affordable these unaffordable power bills. I think you've really nailed something uh, there in, in regards to subsequent governments, right, is that may, maybe in part because of our electoral cycle, uh, the long-term uh, costs are not often considered uh, when making a lot of these decisions. Um, and I think especially since the, the sale of some of the energy assets, they're looking year to year uh, and, and aren't really considering like, you know, 50 years down the track, what is this going to look like? What are the costs going to be uh, when the cables snap um, or when we, we don't have X, Y, and Z? Uh, and, and again, you see this across a variety of infrastructure in New Zealand. Uh, so I think sewer systems are, are one or like water pipes are, are having a, a bit of a struggle in Wellington at the moment. Similar things in, in Auckland here and there where the investment just isn't being put in for the long-term value of the community. Uh, and it, and it, it just costs you more in the long run. Um, but it's not what politicians think wins votes. Uh, and I think that's, that's pretty key to getting the changes somehow figuring out how to take that public um, and community uh, Wish. Systems. It's systems thinking, right? It's systems and, and thinking. take it further. It's systems yeah, it thinking that people aren't, it's not It's not natural, I think, in such a short electoral cycle, especially. But as Amanda was saying before, um, like people care about these things. These these are things that you can bring close to home. It's not that, it's not that complex. It's just the fact that it's not the way that uh, the powers that be without trying to sound like a conspiracy theorist want this to, want this to be, uh, advertised right so like the the market the market question when it comes to like centralization versus decentralization of power distribution like if if power was created on a very decentralized level obviously that would enormously undercut the value the value add that i don't know enormous enormously profitable uh power companies would bring to the market right which would make their profits a lot less Therefore, they don't have the uh, incentive to continue to push blah, 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 blah. It's very obvious, right? It's kind of the, um, the, the most basic baby, baby Chomsky kind of argument you could, you could possibly make. But as, um, the, as Amanda was saying, like this kind of like generate, generate solar on your own roof decentralization level is, would entirely like recreate the understanding of power that we have. So yeah, Amanda, can you like, um, fl flush out our depressed minds with some uh, <laughs> explanations of like how decentralized power is fundamentally different from the kind of electricity generation system we currently have. Obviously, like the islands are different in New Zealand. So especially with, re with reference to that, I think the question is uh, 
I suppose, idiosyncratic in that way. But yeah, take it away. Probably, this will probably be the final point as well, um, because I think I have to leave afterwards, Amanda. So we might even just wrap up. This has been really good. Yeah, um, this is what excites me the most about the power sector and why I'm such a nerd about it, because I just see this like huge window of opportunity because there's so much cool stuff you could do. Um, for example, uh, putting solar panels on schools and then on the weekends when you're not using the power to power the school, gifting the energy back to you know families um, with kids in the school who are in energy hardship. Um, you could do the same thing in terms of government buildings or council buildings. You cover them in solar and government and council use that solar during the weekdays. And then on the weekends, they gift it to people in need. Um, one of the awesome things about community energy schemes is that like people actually have ownership of it. So they start to care about what time of day they're using their energy, how much energy they're using, but also, um, you know, one of the things that we've seen in Europe with the rollout of onshore wind is um, resistance to wind power in your backyard or whatever. But often that comes down to, um, you know, overseas or outsider company coming and putting a wind farm in your community that you get nothing for. Whereas in contrast, if you say to the community, let's build a wind farm together that you're a stakeholder in and that you have some ownership over, the amount of support for those kind of schemes just goes up exponentially, which makes a whole lot of sense, right? So I feel like there's this awesome opportunity where we can, you know, own our own power, share our own power, gift it to people who need it. Um, and yeah, just like have a bit more control over it and a bit more interest in it. Um, and that's something that's happening all over the world. Um, and it's not happening here yet, but I think it's only a matter of time. And the more we see all these reminders of how broken the system is, I think the more um, opportunity there is to tell that story and, and push the government to make a regulatory framework that's going to allow it. Any final thoughts on, on the whole thing, Gareth, before we wrap it up? Yeah, I mean, just to totally endorse what uh, Amanda said, you know, it's such an exciting time for energy and it is a human right, you know, lives literally depend on it. And if we're going to meet our climate goals, it is crucial the government shows leadership, takes uh, some strategic transformational decisions, because it's just not set up for the challenges of the future. We're not going to meet our climate goals unless we radically change. You know, one estimate from um, uh, TransPower is if we're going to electrify the vehicle fleet, we've got to double our electricity grid. If we're going to meet those climate goals, we basically got to do what's taken a hundred years to build a grid, one of the most complex things we've built collectively. Uh, that took us a hundred years to build. We've got to do it within 15 years and we've somehow got to do it affordably. And sadly, we're missing out on the really cost-effective solutions. I'm currently writing a biography of Jeanette Fitzsimons and this is something she talked about from the early 70s. And often we've gone for these mega engineering think big solutions. You know, in her time, it was, uh, the Think Big project of Muldoon, the Mothamui synthetic plant, um, other really crazy schemes we look back now. And in hindsight, that was absolutely mad, but we're orthodox at the time. And today we're still looking for these mega solutions, you know, like Onslow as a giant battery, when we've got cost-effective solutions from energy efficiency, conservation, where we're in the bottom half of the developed world, through to really great ways to produce new generation, like Amanda's talked about, or the almost half of our total generation for wind that we've already got consented could be built tomorrow if we had the parts, but the power companies are sitting on it. So such opportunities to really deliver it, but it's going to take greater leadership. And Philip, it's something you said that 
you know, I'm not trying to defend politicians here, but it's not just the politicians that are at fault for the lack of infrastructure spending on water, electricity, it's all the systems that they built around it too. The auditors, the accountants, the officials, uh, the councils. We really need a transformational change. And I think the great opportunity for New Zealand is Makaranga Māori. You know, if we actually adopted some of these values, if we took a much more long-term thinking, if we actually valued the public's participation and say in these decisions, I've got no doubt that we would be on a low-carbon, cheaper power pathway. So... Yeah, I'm glad that people like Amanda are working in that field. Lots of people are really interested. I just hope you can get off the back pages of the business part of the newspaper and actually front and centre in the public discourse. Well, hopefully uh, we, we get there with this podcast somehow with our uh, enormous audience. Hey, thank you so much, uh, both of you, for, for coming on and talking about that uh, this evening. Um, if people wanted to find you online, uh, if they wanted to read more of what you're doing, uh, where can they do that? Uh, we wrote a report a few years ago called Solarize New Zealand. Um, it's still relevant. We're still pushing the government on it. So just Google Solarize New Zealand Greenpeace and you'll find that. Thanks. I can be found on social media. And also I live on a little island in the middle of the Otago Harbour now. And I love people taking people over my little boat to show them my island. So you're welcome <laughs> to come and continue the Korea there. Hey, thank you so much. And if you've enjoyed this, uh, go and check out some of those documents, uh, engage with, with both of these uh, people on uh, the energy industry. Uh, and, uh, so, and, so much more to speak about. And on Gareth's Island, visit Gareth's Island. Visit Gareth's Island so you can <laughs> uh, get his little Come boat over out. if you're feeling uh, hale and hearty. <laughs> and um, yeah, give us a share. I think it's really important that we are getting more traction um, in the community, um, more talk about this. Um, and clearer communication about it as well um and hopefully it reaches the ears of our, our politicians and we start uh, making some transformational changes thanks so much for listening we'll catch you next time relentless routines the dying embers of your dreams is the lie aspirational Will you die keeping your glass half full? The relentless routines The dying embers of your dreams Is a lie aspirational Will you die keeping your glass half full? You don't hate your nation You hate nationalism You don't hate your nation Capitalism Oh, you don't